the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, uh, and uh, most scholars believe it's the last Gospel that was written in the, the series of the four. Uh, it came much later, and uh, I want you to look at John chapter 3, and we're going to look at the most famous verse in all of the Bible, verse 16, John three sixteen. Go ahead and find it. If you haven't found it, it's on the screen. But what I want you to do is read along with me, okay? So this is group participation time. Here we go. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This passage, as you already know, it is the most famous verse in all of the Bible. It is the most familiar verse, even to people that have probably never even stepped inside of a church building. People are familiar with this verse because maybe they've seen it held up at a, at a sporting event. They've heard their grandmother recite it to them multiple times. But they've never actually been in church to hear this verse preached on or taught on. Or maybe they've never heard you even speak this verse to them, but they know it. Or they have some sort of idea about it. Well, what I want to do this morning, as we think of the idea of love, I want us to really examine this verse as we are in our fourth week of Advent with this theme of love. And this verse is one that we really need to understand. I've heard uh, people say that John 3.16 is the gospel in one verse. Which is true if you actually understand what the verse is saying. Now, if someone does not really understand what the verse means, then it's not really good news. What it will leave you with is just really a misunderstanding or an inaccuracy about God. And so we must really understand what does this verse mean, and how can we preach love to our neighbors and our family members with this one verse? Well, what I want to do this morning is give you just a few aspects of this verse. There's really five, I believe, that I have here for us this morning to understand and consider as we think about this verse and how maybe you could even explain this to someone that you would encounter. Well, the first aspect of this verse is the very first words, for God. And the first aspect is that there is a God. There is a God. This verse is spoken by who? Who's the one speaking here? This is participation time. Jesus is the answer, okay? So I gave you like that Sunday school, like softball answer you need to hit, right? Jesus is the answer, right? Jesus is the one speaking. He's the one speaking, and he's speaking to a person at this time, not just, just out into the open, out into the air, but to a very specific person named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a leader in Israel, not just a Pharisee, but one of the highest of Pharisees. Jesus speaking to this man that believes that there is a God. He, he believes and has centered his, his life around and dedicated his life to a God. But the God in which Jesus is speaking about, Nicodemus does not know. And now why do I say this? Because earlier in chapter 3, if you go back into chapter 3, you see that Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again in order to know this God. And Nicodemus is confused. What do, what do you mean by this? Now, for many people today, they do not know this God that Jesus is speaking of, and they do not know the God in which you worship. And really, many people don't believe there even is a God. But notice, Jesus here is teaching, the very first thing he's teaching with this verse is, there is a God. There is a God. Now, 
maybe, maybe the question that we should be asking is, should we rely upon Jesus' information here? Should we rely upon Jesus' opinions about there being a God? Is he really qualified to speak on this fact that there is or there is not a God? And I would say yes. He is the most qualified individual that has ever lived on this earth to tell us that there is a God. Why is that? Well, I think there's many, many reasons here. Some are very obvious to you. One is that you know he's claimed to know God because, why? He's from heaven. He's from God. And then what do we see from his life? We see that all of his life is in perfection, which is showing us who God really is. We have evidence from this, this perfect life of Jesus as he then goes to a cross. He dies as a perfect sacrifice, then to rise again from the dead, proving again who he is and what he has claimed to be as being from the Father, from heaven, all of his words prove to be true. And so with the life of Jesus, with the resurrection of Jesus, what do we have? We have the evidence of him being truthful in everything that he's ever said. And so why we would not believe this? And I think this is, a, this is an argument point for us to point to our neighbors and our friends, our family members, saying there is a God. There is a God. And Jesus is evidence of that. He proves that with his, not just his words, what he's promised, but also with his life and what he has done. The historical, real life Jesus has proven this point. So Jesus' knowledge of God, it is the most reliable that anybody could ever say about God. So whatever he teaches us about God, we should probably embrace that. We should probably rely upon that. And Jesus tells us that God does exist. The very first thing that we learn from this verse is that God does exist. And then he shares some other truths about who this God is. This God that does exist, what are some truths about him? The next thing Jesus tells us in this verse, as it says, for God so loved. The second aspect that Jesus teaches us is that God, this God that exists, he loves. He loves. Now please take note here about this verse and maybe even take out a piece of paper or mark there in your margins, whatever about this verse because this is a place where a lot of people get off track with understanding who this God is that Jesus is talking about. Now, we are using the ESV translation this morning, and in the ESV it says, For God so loved the world, which is really how a lot of other popular translations have translated this verse, like the NIV, the New King James, the King James, the NASB translation, all use the same kind of words of so loved. So loved. Now, our understanding of the word so is very important here. Very important, this two-letter two word. The word so is not to be translated or understood to mean so much. So much. As in attributing a great value to the object. There are two other popular translations that I think give maybe a clearer understanding of what is really being communicated here, one being the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, where it says, For God loved the world in this way. The New Living Translation says, For this is how God loved the world. I think these two translations do a better job of communicating what does the so mean. The word so should be understood to mean that God that the way God has loved, not in, this, in the idea of or a sense of the amount of love. So Jesus teaches Nicodemus and now us that God that does exist, 
he also loves. This God who is there, who is present, he does love. And God has demonstrated his love. And this is such a great truth for us to understand about who God is. He is not, not some idea of like a supercomputer where he has calculated all things out and then he will execute his calculations without emotion, without feelings. But he is a God who will act with perfect emotion and perfect feelings upon the perfect calculations of his sovereign will. He does care. And he does interact with his creation. Christianity rejects the idea of deism. Deism. Deism is the idea that God is simply just the creator of all things, and he has wound the cosmic clock and has let it tick until its last talk. That's not the app, by the way. And what we learn about who God is is that he, he cares. He's not just absent or distant from his creation. He is involved. This is what Jesus teaches us about God. God is involved with his creation and he cares for his creation. And God has demonstrated his love and care for his creation. How? Through his son. We also learn from this verse and the surrounding verses of this chapter, as well as really the entirety of John's gospel, that God's love is truly something amazing. It's truly something that is amazing because of how bad the world is. This is how amazing God's love is because of how bad the world is. All throughout John's Gospel, we are reminded, the reader is reminded again and again that we should not love the world. John picks this back up in 1 John where he keeps repeating that theme again and again, do not love the world. Why? It's, it's evil. It's corrupt. So how should God's love be appreciated? How should we this morning, as we think of God's love being shown to us, how should we really appreciate that? Well, uh, author, theologian, D.A. Carson says this about John 3.16. He says, the Jews were familiar with the truth that God loved the children of Israel. Here, God's love is not restricted by race. Even so, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. It's so bad. How loving is God? Well, he demonstrates his love to the, the whole of humanity that hates him. Humanity hates him. Jesus says this in verses 19 and 20 of the same chapter. Drop down there. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Humanity has an active hatred of God. But what does Jesus teach us about God? He actively demonstrates his love to the human race by sending his son into this corrupt world, into the badness of the world. Paul writes about the same idea in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, where he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one who will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So as Paul points out in verse 7, it would be a rare occasion for someone to, to die for a righteous person. But what does God do? What is Paul's point here? How does God love? Look at verse 8. He demonstrates or shows his love when we were still what? Sinners. Haters of God. This is how God has demonstrated his love. How great is the love of God? It goes beyond any form of human reasoning. Because he would give his son in order to redeem and reconcile who? The murderer? The rapist? The liar? The thief? The blasphemer? The idolater? The disobedient? And the hater of God? Which is all of us. God has shown his love. And he has shown that love in giving his son. And this leads us to the next, next aspect of this verse. He has a son. This God that does exist, this God that does love, he has a son. The next thing Jesus teaches is that God has a son. Now, the extremely important thing that we really have to understand about the son is that he is begotten. He is begotten, not created. He's not created like the angels. And I, I think if you want further explanation of this, read the, the first chapter there in Hebrews. It explains quite clearly that Jesus is not like the angels. He is not Michael the archangel, as some would believe. He is not a created being. Also, what we need to understand is that Jesus is not adopted as a son, not adopted like we are as Christians into the family of God. So Jesus is not created, he is not adopted, he is begotten. Now the, the King James translation uses this language here that I think is really helpful for us to understand this doctrine because it uses the words only begotten son. Only begotten son. God's only begotten son is God. This is who the son is. Which means that there was never a time that the Son was not begotten because He is co-eternal with the Father. Now, maybe that's too theological for you right now. Let me bring that to, to your, your notes page. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Same, same book, same gospel, same author here helps us understand that idea. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? Jesus is the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Paul writes the same kind of thing in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, not meaning He was created, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That's really important. I'll come back to that. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Why is that idea of for him really important? Because who should receive worship? God alone. God alone. So if all things were created for him, what would that mean about him? He is God. John and Paul 
They both agree that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. The love that the Father has for the Son is evident throughout the Gospels, and we hear Jesus' own words as He speaks of the Father's love for Him and His love for the Father. So when we hear John 3.16 and learn that God loved the world by sending His Son, this means that there was an eternal love being displayed. An eternal love. Not just temporary. Not just momentarily. But there's an eternal love being displayed in the Son coming and the Son living and the Son dying and the Son being resurrected. There is an eternal love being displayed. The Father has an eternal love for the Son and the Son for the Father. And here we learn that the Son was given to the world in order to accomplish something because of the love of God. This leads to the next aspect of this verse. The fourth thing that we learn here is that His Son had a mission. This God that does exist, this God that does love, this God that does have a Son, sent the Son on a mission, a very specific mission. When it tells us that God gave His Son, this is pointing to the incarnation of Jesus, meaning He, was, he, was, he came in the form of flesh. John chapter 1 tells us this as well. But also what this is pointing toward is the future death of this Son. Jesus came in the flesh because the sin against God was by humans. Humanity. Humanity was the problem. But humanity didn't have any kind of capability to satisfy the righteous requirement of the holy God. So, what happens? God sends His Son. So when Jesus was given to the world, He, he had to be in the form of a human in order for humanity to be restored to a right standing before God. And the mission of Jesus was not just to, to show people how to be good. His mission was not just to give some good advice or some good guidance. This is not why he came. Now, this is what some people believe, and even some people that would even claim themselves to be Christians, but they would misunderstand and completely miss the point of why Jesus came. What did he, came to, what did he come to do? He came for the eternal purpose. Who is he? He's the eternal God. So he always had an eternal purpose because he is the eternal God. He, he has to act upon this eternal purpose with this eternal love. And when Jesus came to this earth, he came to save sinners. This was his purpose. This is why he came. He came to save the human race. He came to save them by his love. His love for humanity comes from, this is really important, comes from his love for himself. The eternal love that he has comes from himself to himself and then overflows to us. This is the love of God. Jesus came to this earth to fulfill the law and the prophets. He, he tells us this, right? Why did he come? To fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to testify to the truth as he tells Pilate what he came to do was to show that His Word is true. God's Word is true, and it's always true. And with the fulfillment of these two things, Jesus goes to the cross completely and totally righteous and perfect, giving Himself as the greatest display of love. Displaying, first and foremost, His love for the Father. And what do we see in Jesus' life? We see Him living completely and totally in obedience to the Father, even to the point of death even death on a cross. 
He then displays his love for us by dying in our place. Now look back in John chapter 3. Look back to verses 14 and 15. Now I want you to see something here. We, we know verse 16, but we don't usually know the verses around that. And, and it's really important to understand these. Look at the two verses before this. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So just before the most famous verse in all of the Bible, that even non-Christians even know, we have a reference to one of the most unique or strangest stories out of the Old Testament. And who is speaking all of this? Jesus is. So Jesus is referring to Numbers 21, the story in Numbers 21. You should go home and read that this afternoon. It wouldn't take very long. And in that chapter, there's this story of Israel. <clears throat> As they are, are making their way towards the promised land, they speak out against God. They, they complain about Moses again. This is a recurring theme of their journey. And because of this, God sends out venomous snakes which were biting the people, and it, tell, it tells us that there were many who were dying. Now Moses, he then prays to God and is given instruction, a very strange instruction, to make a bronze serpent and then to put it up on a pole. He then is to set this pole up in a place where anyone who would be bitten by these venomous snakes would, would look up to the serpent and be healed or be saved. This is strange. Because, again, another story that we have in Exodus, in the story of them coming out of Egypt, is where the people make a golden calf and then one of my favorite parts is where Moses comes down, crushes the thing up into powder and makes them drink it. That's fun. So now God is telling Moses to make a serpent that's bronze, hold it up in front of the people that they could look to the serpent and be saved. What is happening? Why is Jesus quoting that here to Nicodemus? Why is this coming before the gospel in one verse? Well, God's plan... God's plan to rescue anyone who would have been bitten by these snakes, they were to look to the symbol of their curse. They were to look up to this bronze serpent. All they had to do was to look with faith upon the promised salvation for their curse. Those who had been bitten, they were slowly feeling the effects of the toxic venom that was moving through their system and the only option they had, the only salvation they had, was to look up to their curse. Look up to the promise that God had given them for salvation. They needed to look with faith. And if they looked with faith, they would be saved. Is this not the same thing that all of humanity needs? Everyone. Everyone has been bitten by the toxic venom of sin and is slowly dying in their sin. Paul would even say that you're dead in your sins. Paul tells us that there's none righteous, that all have turned aside from what is right. How can anyone be saved from this death sentence of sin? 
Well, the answer is in what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. He says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and then verse 15, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. How is anyone saved from the serpent of sin? It's by looking to the one that has become the curse for you. It is the one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is where you find your salvation. And your salvation alone is in Him When Jesus says in verse 16 that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, what is He doing? He's just repeating what He said in verse 15. He's teaching Nicodemus and us that the only way to have eternal life is to believe. And how do you believe? You, You look to Him. You look to Him. Look to the One who will become the curse for sinners, Nicodemus. Look to this One. Look to the one who is the display of God's love to the world. How has God displayed his love? He sent his son on a mission. And what was that mission? That he would be lifted up. In verse 15 and 16, it says, Whoever, whoever, which means that the Son of God was lifted up to save whoever would look to Jesus as their Savior. He was lifted up for all kinds of sinners or all degrees of sinners, but only for sinners who would look to Him for their salvation. It doesn't matter how long maybe you have suffered with this bite of sin. It doesn't matter how much venom is in your system. If you would believe in Jesus, He will give you eternal life. Now, you might think to yourself, even this morning, that I'm, I'm too far gone. Uh, I've, I've had this bite of sin for, for decades, and, and, and it hasn't been removed. It's still there, and, and I'm, I'm on the edge of eternal death. I can't be saved. Well, what did Jesus say? Look at 15 and 16 again. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Is that not a promise? Is that not a promise by God Himself? Jesus promises to save any and all who would believe in Him. Believing in Him means that you believe in the mission also that He was sent to do. And what is the mission? That He would be lifted up. He would become the curse for you. This is what He was sent to do. And He accomplishes that mission. You must trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You must trust in this mission that he had, and that was to be resurrected from the dead. Now, The the word whoever would be really a bit of a shock to this Pharisee, Nicodemus, because he believed that the only way for you really to be okay or righteous with God was to follow all kinds of rules set out by the Pharisees, and that would make you pleasing to God. And really, the only ones that could do that would be also the Jews. So Jesus teaches us that his mission was for whoever would believe. Now understand, understand this as well, that whoever doesn't mean everyone. Whoever doesn't mean everyone, because everyone will not be saved, because not everyone will believe. Salvation will only come to those who believe. 
Just as the serpent was lifted up for people to look upon for their salvation, so must anyone who wishes to be saved. You must look to Jesus with humility in your heart and a cry of mercy to God to save you. And the only one that will be saved, they're the ones that look to Jesus Christ. They're the ones that look to the Savior, the Son of God. And everyone else that does not do that, they will suffer the eternal death by the toxic venom of sin. You must look to Christ. There is no other way. This was his mission. And then the fifth aspect this morning is this. His mission is accomplished. This is what we learn. This is what we understand, not just from this verse, but really the, 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 the complete New Testament tells us that his mission is accomplished. The mission that Jesus was sent on to display the love of God to a world that hated him and then to redeem those who would believe in him has been completed. It's done. When he says on the cross, it is finished, what did he mean? That it is finished. It is complete. The mission was never going to fail. Why? Because God doesn't fail. He cannot fail. It is an impossibility for him to fail. And so whenever Jesus promises something to you, whoever you are, to look to him and you will be saved, can he fail in that? Go ahead. No, he cannot. So please hear this truth about God's love. It never fails. It never fails. When he promised to send his son to save you from eternal death, he did. He did, Christian. He saved you from that. This, this is why, as we spend time in Advent thinking on the, the joy and the peace and the hope that we have, we are also reminded of the love of God and what he did. It is done. D-O-N-E. Over. He has promised. He has promised something else to you as well. He has promised to bring you into His eternal presence where you will have your hope realized, your peace completed, your joy made full, and you will then know that God's love never ends. It is eternal. It is eternal. As we come just one week closer to this day where we celebrate Christ's birth, let's be overwhelmed, <laughs> overwhelmed with God's love. As Christmas approaches, let the eyes of your heart look up to the Son of God. The Son that has been displayed to be how God has loved. By giving Himself as a sacrifice for the curse of sin. He has become the curse for you. Look to Him. Let your heart be so merry because God's love that you have, that you have in your heart, that it's so overwhelming with you that you have to share this story of Jesus. You have to share John 3.16 with people. Let me leave you with this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life.
How about we spend just a few moments right now thinking on that verse, thinking word by word through what does this mean for me and what does it mean for my neighbor? What does it mean for my friends? What do I need to do with this verse? This is not news that you sit on. This is, this is news that should motivate you and bring you to a place where you, have, you are compelled to share this news with somebody else. Would you spend just a few moments this morning in reflection on what does this verse mean and how should this verse be applied? And after you do that, I will pray for us and we'll sing one final song and be dismissed this morning.